0: Hey, this is Steve, and welcome back to another episode of Restless, the podcast. Hey, we're excited that you're here tonight because we have a fantastic guest with us. And hey, we would love you to check us out on our website at RestlessPodcast.com. And if you would like to be on the show or tell your story at some point in time, you can go to the same place at the website, and there's a drop-down box that says Tell Your Story. Leave us a message, and we would love to hear from you to tell your story, because it's in your story that is the power of hope. Luke, tonight we have a special guest. In fact, this is just not a typical episode of Restless, the podcast. It's one of those Rogue Waves shows that we've been promising. Can you tell us a little something about it?
1: I sure can. This is, in fact, our first ever Rogue Wave episode. You may have noticed the intro was a little bit different today. Different intro, different show. We're really excited because whereas the episodic content is more about people's stories, which will remain the focus of Restless the Podcast, the rogue waves will be the occasional intellectual venture or quest, you might say, to be able to ask questions on a certain topic relating to the restless nature of the human heart and the fact that our minds are hungry for knowledge as well. And for our very first one, we are incredibly beyond blessed to have a exemplary guest tonight and that is Dr. Lester Vogel. He is a professor of Judaism at McDaniel and uh, also back with us is Jared from last week's episode and Jared's uh, a close personal friend of Dr. Vogel and uh, we thought we'd bring Jared back in because he'd had great context as well and right with that I'm going to ask Jared to introduce our guest.
2: Hey, guys. uh, Thanks for having me back. Um, Yeah, I wanted to introduce um, Les. Uh, He's a close personal friend of mine um, and a mentor as well. Um, I had the privilege of getting to know him while I was a student at McDaniel College. Uh, There are very few people that I respect as much, and I, I look forward to
0: hearing what he has to say today. Great. <clears throat> Thank you, Jared. Hey, you know, it's been about three weeks since we actually posted your show, Off the Trail. Uh, and we got a lot of great feedback uh, from that show and just the experiences that you've had in that and, and what you told the listeners. Tell us, you know, since then, you know, what's been going on with you? <laughs>
2: wow. Um, a lot. A lot. It's been a very busy month. Um so i made the decision to uh go back to school um i don't know if i told you that did i tell you that yet mm. no uh, so i'm going to be going back to school um either uh going for a master's degree or for a phd um i'm currently looking at programs here in maryland as well as elsewhere uh but i've also had some really interesting opportunities um with some nonprofits here in maryland Um, and there are just a lot of things that are happening that are leading me in a direction where I think I am becoming, um, everything's becoming more clear that there, there is a a purpose behind the last couple years of my life. Uh, and I think it makes sense that, you know, Les is here because he was definitely a big part of that, uh, and also you guys, um, Steve and Luke, who have also been a big part of that. So in a way, this is sort of a meeting of the waters, so to speak. Um,
0: yeah. Jared, I think that's that's really neat. It's been a privilege for us to just kind of see this metamorphosis <coughs> taking place, and so thank you for allowing us to be a part of that. And. And Dr. Vogel, Les, you've given us the permission to use your name, Les, like that. So that's really warm of you. Thank you for that. And when you showed up the door, I thought, this is a warm guy. This is the kind of guy I'd like to hang out with a whole lot more. So I want to thank you for that. But, you know, Restless, the podcast, has been the kind of show to where we've had people come on and just tell their stories of struggle and of faith, and at the end of the day, how Hope returned to them, and life seemed to go back onto a trajectory of hope. And some might be asking right now, why would I or why would we, as restless, bring a a professor of Judaism to a show that probably speaks more to the Christian community than any? But it seems to me that Christianity is rooted deeply in Judaism. But often, I think, as as Christians, we overlook. Those roots, and sometimes don't ignore them completely. And in that, we failed to be enriched in a way that we could if we knew more about Judaism and that historical piece of that. Could you just share with us for a little while um, how
3: that can happen? Certainly, I'd be happy to. And uh, before I begin, I just wanted to thank you both for the opportunity, and and to Jared as well for. Um, for his friendship um, over the, the last several years, uh, it has been a joy to have him first in my classes and then for the two of us to um, take a look at other um, opportunities to study outside of the classroom. So it's very, very appreciated. In terms of hope, what comes to mind in the Jewish context probably. More than anything, at least in my own mind, um, are the words of the Israeli national anthem, which the, t- the title of which is Hatikva, which means the hope. And the anthem itself basically says that as a people, as a people of a particular faith, they spent the last almost two thousand years, in a condition of continuous hope despite occasions of severe punishments or um, very trying times, uh, depending upon the locales and the different experiences of various communities um, scattered around the world. Um, But hope is also something that is uh, built in, to Judaism as a philosophy. Um, and I think it's worthwhile beginning to understand the nature of Judaism and see why that hope is always present, and how, as a faith, it not only is present, but there are occasions during the calendar year when that idea of hope is stoked and reminded of uh, families and members of the religion and the faith. So, for example, um, in a few weeks, uh, we will, Jews around the world will begin to celebrate the new year, the Rosh Hashanah holiday. Rosh Hashanah literally means the, the head, the start of the the new year and as a holiday as a holiday of faith it's probably one of the most celebrated among jews of various persuasions um, celebrated with a great deal of joy and it is seen basically as the beginning of a period of internal reflection that each individual is asked to take time to do a self-assessment, think back over the course of the previous year about how successful were they in utilizing their own native talents and abilities, how well have they lived up to Judaism's call, to act in particular ways, to be ethical, to be kind, to give charity, to fulfill, ev- not everyone, but because uh, that's really an impossibility, but to fulfill as many of the 613 commandments that are given in the Jewish Bible, in the Torah, uh, the five books of Moses the opportunity to perform one's faith, not just believe as an intellectual um, activity, but to do one's faith is a fundamental part of Jewishness. Um, And it's interesting because I'd like to... to start, perhaps, with something that's very familiar to to all of us, um, a segment of um, the very beginning of Genesis, um, when God has finished creating the world in six days, and it's the late afternoon, presumably, of the seventh day, um, the Bible pauses and it notes Um, in Hebrew, and I think it's worthwhile for me to read it in Hebrew because Hebrew is so essential to understanding Judaism because Hebrew, like other languages from the Middle East, has multiple meanings for various words, and depending on context, you could arrive at different understandings, so let's take a look. The uh, verse I'm going to, to read is, um, it's in the second chapter of Genesis, and it begins, it's in verses 1 through 3. In Hebrew, it's, Vayechulu ha Vahaaretz, And they were finished, the heavens and the earth. V'chol tzva'am. And all of their assets, all of their array. Some often translate tzva'am as hosts. The word tzva'am is fairly interesting, and here it's a good example of how context is so important in Judaism. The word tzva'am could be an army. Um, Its roots are with the words of um, tzav, the word tsav is a turtle in Hebrew. Turtle is almost like an armed animal. It's got protection, it's like it has its own shield on its back. Um, also, tsav could be a covered wagon in Judaism. So you have multiple meanings that this word am has grown out of. Um, it gives you some sort of context. Of what it is, the word, if you don't know it, is. That's the first sentence. Um, so they were finished, the heavens and the earth, and all of their array, all of their hosts. elokim, and uh, God, on the seventh day, asher asa, that God finished all of the work that he had done by the seventh day or the start of the seventh day all of the work so god ceased on the seventh day from all of the work that he had done he had made and god blessed the seventh day by and he made it holy. He deemed it separate. He decided to separate it out from everything else. Kivoshovat The reason being, because on that day he rested from all of the work. Asher bara Elokim laasot, which God had created for it to do. It's a fairly interesting ending to that paragraph. And there is an understanding that grows out of that word that seems to be hanging on the end, that, that God had created it to do, to function. And Jews take that hanging word, that kind of extraneous word, And they understand from it that it is part of the human role in God's master plan to basically delegate the completion of God's creation to humanity. And by delegating that to always push for a more perfect world, that it's every individual person's duty to make the world somewhat better than he or she had found it. And the kinds of activities that one participates in in making a world better are the obvious ones, Um, help for the poor, not taking advantage of other people, um, maintaining an ethical standard of living um, and dealing with others, um, loving one's neighbor like yourself, serving God in ways in which God had outlined in the Bible with a sense of joy, because being alive is something it's a privilege um, and while a person is alive, there probably can be nothing finer than than aiming for a higher purpose in life. So these are things that grow out of a text. And even just that simple, simple little word and the understanding of it becomes then a crucial part of a larger philosophy for Judaism. So how one goes about um, doing making the world a better place. Obviously, nobody can do right all the time. And yet, that's why a holiday like Rosh Hashanah comes once a year where you reflect. How much charity did I give during the year? How often did I help somebody who may have needed assistance in some way or another that I could have helped but didn't. Um, How often, what occasions did I help? And, you know, to be proud of those things. So it's a matter, it's a very introspective holiday, but it's also one of joy because it represents completion of another year um, in in a larger scheme of things for, for people that they've shared. Rosh Hashanah is followed by um, a single-day holiday called Yom Kippur, which is, everybody knows, this is a fast day, a very serious day. Um, In Judaism, uh, especially um, in very traditional Judaism, Yom Kippur is a day of, I would say, serious joy, a very serious sense of joy because what Yom Kippur represents is a day when, after your introspection, and you realize your shortcomings for the year, that you ask God for forgiveness. You want to start the new year fresh. And the holiday itself is one of intense pleading, but also intense joy with the expectation that sincerity will ensure a person's being forgiven for their sins. And onward through the upcoming holiday season, um, and the the fall is packed with um, holidays, um, there is immediately five days after Yom Kippur Actually, at the very end of Yom Kippur, there is almost a burst of energy and happiness and song in most synagogues as people complete their fasts, get ready to go back home and get back with their families, but also knowing that the next holiday begins only five days later, and that is a holiday that is termed um, a period of happiness um, is a, uh, in Hebrew, it is Zaman Simchatenu. It's the time of our happiness. It's a shared joy. Um, there's always an interesting uh, aspect to Judaism, and that's the balance between the individual and one's association with the larger group of believers, and um, the people, um, the rest of the year goes on from Rosh Hashanah, actually. Uh, it goes on to holidays like Hanukkah or Purim, which celebrate historic events. Hanukkah celebrates a period of time when... The nature of Jewish spirituality was threatened with the introduction of Hellenism um, into the land of Israel and among the population. It was extremely divisive. Um, And there was a a victory of believers over the Hellenists, um, non-believers and the restoration um, of the temple service in um, Jerusalem. A holiday like Purim is also one focused on an occasion when there was a threat. In the case of Purim, it was a physical threat of annihilation of the Jewish population by um, the mal- by the, the uh, purposeful intent of the then Prime Minister of the Persian Empire, um, Haman, and the miraculous um, overthrow of Haman at the last minute um, with the help of Esther, the queen, and her uncle, um, Mordechai. And um, it's a very interesting dichotomy because Hanukkah is one of spiritual salvation or a saving from a perilous period, and Purim is one of saving the physical um, corpus of believing Jews. Uh, After that, it moves on to Passover, which in a sense is, in many ways, is considered the beginning of the national Jewish year, because it represents the start of the Jewish nation as it's freed from slavery and then proceeds on its journey to Mount Sinai, where it basically gets its marching orders um, through the granting of the the Torah um, and the the great revelation at Sinai. Um, And that takes place, it's observed usually, at the holiday of Shavuot, um, called the holiday of weeks. Um, The complexity of the calendar in Judaism It is a lunar calendar, and it is a calendar, if one thinks about it seriously, is a calendar that depends heavily on observing natural phenomena. Because it's lunar, a month does not begin until a new moon appears in the sky. Um, It's something that um, back. In ancient period, um, people would be on the lookout for the appearance of a new moon, and then if a person witnessed the appearance of a new moon, they would be um, urged to go and testify in Jerusalem that they had witnessed the appearance of a new moon, and they would be questioned by the great court, the Sanhedrin, in Jerusalem and then the new, a new month would be declared. And after declaration, usually bonfires would be lit on hilltops, and the bonfires were said to be spread that would be visible eventually all the way to the Jewish community in Babylonia. Uh, among the Jews who stayed in Babylonia after their exile, um, many Jews did return to the land of israel but some it was a very large community of jews in babylonia from from the ancient period on but i'm always fond to note f- to classes that i teach that judaism has a calendar system that's straight out of the iron age and in many ways it depends on the most natural abilities of people um, the ability to go outside and take a look at the sky and decide, you know, is this, is it cloudy? Is it, can I see the moon? And, um, so it's built on things that are recognizable. Um, it's interesting in terms of Genesis, where it quotes, um, usually it distinguishes one period of time from another, saying, it was evening and it was morning, day, number. One, two, three. And there too, Judaism as a faith depends upon observation of the end of one day after sunset and the appearance of stars becomes the start of a new day. So in Judaism, the religious day starts the night before and then it ends at sunset the following day. Which is also very pre technological. So, continuing in terms of the Jewish calendar, the entire year's cycle is one that expresses a number of hopes through ups and downs, um, through the development and um, celebrations of the people at um, various points in time, celebrations of freedom, celebrations of revelation and the gift of receiving the Bible, the Torah on Mount Sinai through uh, mass revelation, a gift of being able to reach a point of having completed a year and started a sense of reflection and reassessment and then a a point where you are thankful for achieving a certain sense of being able to go forward because you feel as if your burden of the things that you've done wrong in that year have been forgiven and then immediately you move into a holiday period where You're celebrating um, the holiday, the Sukkot celebrates specifically the experience of the Jewish people in the desert after the Revelation, where they lived in very, very flimsy structures, and they were basically subject to the care and feeding um, and protection of God during that period of time. Um, In some ways, that is, is a yearly cycle of hope, the idea of hope. But also, if you think in terms of a weekly occasion, fundamental to Judaism, at the very core of Judaism, is what the The passage that I was reading earlier about the completion by God of the work of creation and then creating—not creating—creating stillness, creating the ability to sit back and enjoy what the work had been done and appreciate not doing the work. That's the nature of the Jewish Sabbath— and the Sabbath of perhaps most any of the celebrations during the year, and because it's like weekly, is something inherently at the very heart of Judaism and has been appreciated by over thousands of years by Jews as an occasion to pause to set aside work to set aside the mundane to set aside the things that we tend to be involved with every day and say there's a break it's time not only for introspection it's t- there's time for study there's time for learning there's time really importantly for being with one's family and the relationships that one has with spouse with children grandchildren with neighbors and friends so there is something in the practice of the sabbath in terms of the way judaism understands that practice should be carried out that is extremely, extremely gratifying. Um, there was one quote I saw several years ago that said um, It's not that the Jews have kept the Sabbath, but rather, over a period of Jewish history, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. It has given them, in a sense, on a weekly basis, a sense of hope. Mm a sense of being able to remove oneself from the daily grind and today perhaps um, talking in terms of the calendar and technology how much more so is the idea of a day minus technology being appreciated you know, with cell phones and computers and all sorts of intrusions and things that make the work week seem to just go on and on continuously, having the ability to set those things aside for a day and just read a book, for example, or sit around a table and have really, really special, delicious food sit with family and sing songs take walks attend synagogue services and study a text um, do some some uh, learning which is also at the heart of judaism those things tend to enhance one's weekly life in a way that the entire week work week for judaism revolves around the sabbath um, from Friday um, morning, the preparations for the Sabbath are usually in high gear already, if not from several days even before. And when it, the Sabbath starts, there is a, a structure to it that is really quite amazing, and it derives directly from the Bible. It derives from a part of the Bible that's sort of an aside in terms of the text. Um, The text describes um, in the book of Exodus, after the revelation at Sinai, God says, if people want to give, create a tabernacle, some kind of structure or something, they can bring all sorts of special items that they may have collected, um, um, gold, silver, special kinds of skins, special colors of threads, and all sorts of things of value. And with those things, they can contribute to the building of a centralized structure where basically the religion would be practiced ceremoniously on a daily basis and not only a center for the practice of it but it would in a sense be the place most identified in the larger movable nomadic camp as being the place where god resides with the people the god is in residence in that what we call a tabernacle Mm -hmm. it's interesting because in talking the text describing the tabernacle it has all sorts of things that are used in the tabernacle it describes all sorts of things materials and structures and items that are to be put together from outer walls and curtains and everything Uh, the the various um, altars that would be in for spices or for for the slaughtering of animals and there's an interruption in that text which all just is not necessarily part of the narrative all of a sudden the narrative is interrupted and god says i want you to obey the laws of the sabbath in the middle of this you know you're to build this you're to build that you're to make all of these things however I want you to keep the Sabbath. So the rabbis, um, the tradition, the oral tradition that Judaism maintains was always a part of the Jewish tradition, not just the textual tradition, but the oral understanding of it, the transmission of that oral tradition, um, eventually reached a point where... um, the decision was made among rabbinical figures to write it down before it would get lost, um, depending upon circumstances and diaspora conditions and so on.
0: Unless, if I could ask, even in that oral tradition, mm-hmm. people went to great extent to make sure it was accurate in passing that story on. Are those Is
3: that correct? That's an interesting point, because, and it's something that I love talking about in class. We talk about the nature of the oral tradition, because I think, to a degree, that oral tradition and the growth of rabbinical scholarship as being the center of Jewish life after basically the disappearance of Jewish political life, or the frailty of Jewish political life, and the. the, First centuries. What what the rabbinical tradition does is, over the period of centuries, from if the Torah dates roughly from say the year twelve hundred B.C.E. The understanding of that tradition had been passed along, and there's even, in fact, It was one of the items that I brought with me. It's the very start of a very small tractate of the Talmud called Pirkei Avot. Um, It means the chapters of the fathers. And there is a record of the transmission of that oral tradition from teacher to student, from God to Moses, Moses to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, who had been delegated and named in the text and then so on down through through millennia almost or at least the millennium of teacher and student relationships so i like to show in class an example of how after many many centuries the talmud is is filled with discussion and questioning of interpretations. What the fundamental question is, is this a valid understanding of the text? Is it a valid interpretation? Is it a tradition that is valid, but perhaps may have veered from another understanding? And I gave an example. Um, which is actually very, very accessible. Uh, a number of years ago, and my wife and I were invited over to a friend's house, and the woman of the house made for her guests um, a particular dish. Um, it was pickled salmon, and it was a special treat. Um, it, Pickled salmon may not necessarily be for everybody. I remember mentioning it in class, and I got a lot of oohs from people who couldn't understand <laughs> the appeal of pickled salmon. But um, after that meal, and after the Sabbath was over, my wife called up the hostess and said, do you mind, Can we, I have the recipe for the salmon. It was delicious. So... The lady had given gave over the phone the recipe for pickled salmon a few weeks later, we hosted some folks over, and my wife <laughs> said,
2: sorry. "I just remembered this story.
3: <laughs> my wife said, "Les, how about if we start off with the pickled salmon?" I said, "Great, uh, do you have the recipe?" and she gave me the piece the scrap piece of paper where the recipe was for pickled salmon, and I looked at it and basically it said. Salmon, vinegar, boil, ketchup, and there was no sense of order to it. There was no sense of that you were going to get a finished product out of what she had scribbled down, because she took it down very quickly. And I like to tell my classes, I said, if you think of the original hostess as God, and you think of my wife as Moses scribbling down furiously to get everything down. Well, at some point, I began thinking I cannot make pickled salmon by reading the, what my wife had written. And I figured, well, in this age, time and age, I can go and search on the internet. So I input, typed into Google, um, some of the parts of the recipe that I knew that would be close enough to it. And I came across a recipe that sounded almost precisely the same. And I printed it out and I took it to the kitchen and I propped it up on, and I began trying to make pickled salmon in my own kitchen. Um, and as I'm working through the recipe, I noticed that the wording in one of the paragraphs was wrong. And it didn't give me the exact instruction as to when I should boil the salmon and when I should remove it and when to add the ketchup. It was a little bit confusing because whoever had edited that online piece did not necessarily do a careful job. And so I had to write what I thought would be the logical order on the side of the recipe. And I'd like to point out to the class that if you think of the original hostess as God and my wife as Moses, and then the internet version as the various traditions of creating a pickled salmon recipe, the possibilities would be endless. You could have multiple versions of pickled salmon. And then once I found what I thought was the most authentic, I found an error in that, and I had to correct that. So, that in a sense was like, I felt almost like one of the Talmudic commentators in making the correction to this oral tradition.
0: So, how did it taste? Excellent. Very good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Rogue Wave number one, part one. We're going to do something a little bit differently this week and break this down into two parts just because this is a Different kind of production and, quite frankly, a a lot to digest, but in the best possible way. So we thought it'd be a good idea to break it down into two halves. Uh, We thank Dr. Vogel for coming on, and you'll be hearing from him again next week in part two. For we here at Restless the Podcast are restless to find the one who rebukes the winds and says to the waves, Quiet, be still, for whom can calm the rogue waves of your heart. When I'm broken to pieces
3: You make me whole And throughout every season You're amending my soul